Episode 53 of Fitness Behaviour of Bevan James Isles. An interview with Wendy Sweet. Team, welcome along to episode 53 of Fitness Behaviour, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness and all the benefits that come alongside it. Well, I've got a big show for you guys today. I've got someone on the show who I'm interviewing, a lady called Wendy Sweet, and I'm going to get pretty much into the interview straight away. I've got a really, really great question that I'm going to be answering after Wendy's uh, interview, so we'll, we'll talk about that later on in the show, but hang around after the show for the uh, question I've got. It's a pretty, a really interesting question, uh, uh, you know, that I'll put to you guys and uh, share my thoughts on it. Wendy Sweet, who is Wendy Sweet? Well, Wendy Sweet is the person I'm interviewing today, and Wendy Sweet is a name that's quite well known within the Australian or the Australasian fitness industry within New Zealand and Australia and she writes for some of the bigger fitness magazines, uh, even the industry fitness magazines uh, called Network Magazine in Australia, she writes for Life Fitness Magazine in New Zealand, Um, she's been a personal trainer, consultant, she she actually talks us through her kind of career. Wendy is one of those people who spent her whole life in fitness. And and the reason I wanted to get Wendy on, and you'll hear her, she's got so much insight into fitness and uh, some really, really great stuff. And the th- reason I really like Wendy's story was because she is someone who has come from kind of their own personal search of loving exercise into how do I help others love exercise as a fitness professional. And then in the latter part of her career, she's gone into the academic side of how do we get people to love exercise in the long term. So she's got this kind of... The, the real world perspective, and I, and I often see, you, you kind of see both with things, you see the person who's very academically based, and um, they have a lot of insight, but then you put them into a real world experience, and, and they actually have not a lot of knowledge and, and skill to be able to help everyday people achieve fitness goals, and then you'll get people who are really good at the real world, but maybe don't have the academic understanding of what it takes to be really great at exercise, and Wendy has both of those, and also she searched her own personal search with fitness in her own life, she she did triathlons, she was a fitness instructor, she was a personal trainer, so she just, her whole adult life has been, how do I help people learn to love exercise, and um, she's going to go into why, the, the whys and what she's learned, and it's just a really, really good interview, and um, she was someone when I first started thinking about getting more people on the show around interviews, uh, Wendy's name came to my head straight away, and so I've got her on her here today for you, so hopefully you'll really love what Wendy has to offer. Before we do, I just want to talk about the patrons. You go to patreon.com, you go to bevanjamesisles.com, and if you want to support the show, uh, what you do is you sign up to become a patron of the show, and what happens there is you just donate a certain level of money, depending on what you want to donate, and uh, every time I release a show, that amount of money will just go towards supporting me doing more of this work um, and this month I had a couple of people sign up Michael Noison and I'm pretty sure Michael is a guy who comes to the gym I'm pretty sure Michael is uh, he's a pretty hardcore exerciser and he's always very supportive of my work so Michael thank you so much for that and Jen I'm going to say Curdy. Jen Curdy as well was also a supporter of Fitness Behaviour you too thank you so much it really does help me 
you know, as, as these patrons grow and more people support the show, I'll be able to put more time and energy. And ultimately, I'd love it to be a weekly show. And, uh, you know, but I only have so much time. And uh, the more support I can get from you guys, maybe I can even make it a weekly show ongoing. But just thank you for those two. Again, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesiles.com. You'll see a link there. Go through the process. Again, it's just you donate money. You give a percentage, or, or sorry, a dollar amount for every time I put a show out. And um, it really goes towards helping me do a better job of what I do. Anyway, I'm going to put Wendy Sweet on right now. Hopefully you enjoy this interview. Okay, team, I'm very, very uh, fortunate to have uh, a lady who, when I started my, my young career, she was a lady who was one of the big names in the industry, and I remember uh, hearing of her and, and just followed her work for years now, and she's in New Zealand, Australasia, really. She's one of the big thinkers in fitness, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have her on the show today, and it is Wendy Sweet. How are you today, Wendy? I'm great. Thank you, Bevan, and it's wonderful to uh, be on your little podcast and and. I say hi to all of your followers. I oh. see that there's a lot of them. Well, I think I, think, I think I would love talking to you today because I know you're into behaviour change and that's very much my focus. But before we kind of get into that, um, you know, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what got you into fitness? Like I was saying before how, you know, you are one of the names in New Zealand, kind of Australasian fitness industry who's had a big influence. But maybe tell me a little bit about your own journey. Sure. Well, I always say that I... I got into fitness through um, good, you know, good luck rather than good management. Um, like many, many people in New Zealand and and, and women um, who are now in their midlife, like me, we started off, you know, living in small communities and small schools where you actually went to school to play sport. You, you, you know, there was very. <laughs> I shouldn't say this. I'm I'm catching up on my academia now. Yeah. But um, but anyway. You know, so those years were, sp- were spent in the South Island um, in a small community and playing lots of netball and tennis and swimming and all those things, so being active. And when I went to Dunedin and started a nursing career, um, those things went out of my life. And, and it's interesting because I'm uh, skipping ahead to now. I'm doing my PhD talking to women in their midlife about how they got started, and my journey is very similar in that we were very active um, at a young age and um, and had a number of influences during those years through either school when, when sport was compulsory, it's not now, but uh, and certainly through living in communities where sport was very much a big part of the community. So I went to Dunedin and chose a career in, in nursing and of course that's like many, many jobs today that's not conducive to mm. a regular pattern of of being active and it wasn't even exercise back then you know we didn't call it exercise it was just you know the fact that you did some activity and and you felt good after it and you met new people and and all those things so um so i ended up working in the intensive care unit uh down in dunedin for a number of years and um and during those years i started to question um you know, why people were ending up in intensive care, particularly when, uh, when we worked in cardiac surgery and cardiology. And, of course, we didn't know a lot then about um, heart disease and, and, you know, all those, all those um, lifestyle diseases. But I was seeing it in the, in, the, in the real world. But at the same time, of course, as you well know, in the 1980s, 
Um, what was happening was a big change in the way we were thinking about health promotion. And of course, there was a lot of things going on in those days. Um, you might have been a little bit too young to remember, but anyway, in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, James Fix from the Cooper Institute in Dallas, Texas, he started promoting aerobic training. And of course, that was when the running revolution started. Mm. Everyone started running. And for a lot of us in those days, that was the very, very forefront of triathlons. And um, I, because I had such a good swimming background and because I ran, I uh, hadn't ridden my bike much, but I loved biking. I'd biked to and from school for, for all my life. And, uh, and so we, there were some of us in Dunedin working in the hospital then that were caught up in the triathlon craze. And when it was started, in fact, I, um, I remember that it was when Erin, of course you know Erin Baker yeah. and Alison Rowe and all those ones, and, and it was the very first New Zealand triathlon series that started back in those days. And I have to say that I was always in the top 10 because there were only 10 women in it. And <laughs> so, so, my claim, so that's my claim to fame, that I was always in the top 10 with Erin Baker and Alison Rowe <laughs> in, those, in those days. And, uh, and so, of course, the other thing that was happening back then was that the industry, the, the, um, there was the emergence of the fitness industry. Mm. And I'm almost a walking history of the fitness industry because in those days, especially in Dunedin, there were mainly, uh, like other centres, um, there were mainly gyms that focused on men and um, building muscle. So it certainly w wasn't an environment that we as women would even think about going to. But what happened was, um, as, as you well know, um, Philip Mills had been over in America and doing his MBA over there, and he bought the original franchise for Australasia for Jazzercise. Yeah. So Jazzercise hit Dunedin and I'd never been into a gym in my life like a lot of women um, who were around back then but for some reason there was enough advertising that went on of course Jane Fonda had hit the screen and and you know early those early days of aerobics where it was all very colourful and leg warmers and, and tights and things. So I have still to this day have no idea how I ended up down in the gym in Dunedin, which wasn't even Les Mills then, but um, I went to my first jazzercise class and, and I was hooked. So that started a, 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 a different um, era for me in that I was so hooked and I must have gone so regularly that they asked me to train as an instructor. So whilst I had my nursing and um, I was the you know ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, I was also opening up my eyes to being, I guess, what we thought at the time was in the in the preventive industry. And um, over time, I, I took more and more classes and, and started, you know, um, uh, really believing in the power of aerobics and, and especially for women and the fact that it was a wonderful setting that they could come and, and you know, and socialise as well. Mm. So I retrained um, at the tender age of 28 and... Uh, and um, after doing lots of triathlons and doing Ironman and, and everything else, but I retrained and did a Z degree, a degree in physical education at Otago University. So that started my transition from the medical system into what I call the, the fitness industry and, uh, and the wellness industry. And then I relocated to the North Island um, and, as you know, ended up in Auckland 
And at the end, beginning of 1991, and Philip Mills said to me, we're ready for personal training. We'd like you to get it started, put it into um, our gyms. And because there were a few personal trainers in America at the time, but they were mainly individual. There was not one gym-based, you know, big team of personal mm. trainers. So that was my life for the next 15 years, was building up personal training as a vocation. And, of course, back in those days, I really didn't understand the power of personal training. Um, I worked as a trainer myself and um, certainly worked with a huge number of the most wonderful trainers, which some of them are still personal training today, mm-hmm. and, um, and really learned a lot over those years. The other thing I did was put in the very first um, contracted personal trainers into gym settings, so moving trainers from an employee model to a contractor model to allow trainers to run their business. So that's what I did there and and then I I left working for Les Mills World of Fitness and ended up down here in Hamilton, New Zealand and uh, decided to really try and, um, and explore an area of personal training that I'd always been interested in, which was behaviour change. Mm. And, um, and of course, having, you know, working, I was invited to lecture at Waikato University and I had been setting up some personal training education for trainers around the country. And it really influenced me to think about furthering my, um, the academic side of my life, uh, which would probably, had probably been forgotten in my earlier years. And um, so I ended up working at um, Waikato University, um, but also uh, doing working towards my master's degree. And my master's degree, I decided to look uh, to interview a number of leading personal trainers around New Zealand who I knew had started, you know, five to ten years earlier. And they basically learned on the job. They really were learning as they went along. And as part of that, um, they had learned what to do to change client behaviours without being, you know, trained from a textbook or, you know, um, or learned any of the theories and models of behaviour change that we know today. So I was really intrigued because a lot of the behaviour change literature that was emerging in the 1990s and, and well, early 2000s, really, had been lumped into the um, academic um, uh, arena and into exercise um, and fitness. Um, and the early, um, some of the strategies that were emerging from these early models had really come out of um, health and medicine. For example, the trans theoretical model, which we know a lot about today, its origins started with drug cessation and smoking cessation. So I was a little bit um, concerned that we were being led down a path in terms of some of the interventions and strategies that were appearing in the health industry and in medicine, because I could see that these trainers that I had worked with since its inception had been doing different things and they were using different strategies. So that got me a little bit curious. So um, so my master's research really looked at what trainers were doing um, to change client exercise and nutrition behaviours and then I aligned that against what the medical um, models and some of the medical literature was. Mm. Um, so that's, that's where I went there and then I've continued down this path um, 
and uh, and now I'm working towards my PhD. But now I'm talking to clients, not trainers. So I'm kind of doing the the flip side, and. Uh, so I was, I was focusing on behaviour change. Well, I want to go into that in a bit more detail soon, but I suppose a few questions I have on a more personal level is um, what drove you within yourself with exercise? So like, you know, like I'm always fascinated in, um, you know, how do we help people who don't have our, our bug, our, our kind of our drug of for the love of exercise? How do we teach that to the non-exerciser? And again, we'll talk about that soon, but what was always the driving force behind your own need and desire to have exercise as a big part of your life? I think that um, as I'm finding with a lot of these interviews that I'm doing with with women, um, exercise um, right back when you are younger, when you're brought up in a family um, whereby you're playing a lot of the traditional sports, certainly the ones that we have here in New Zealand, rugby, netball. And I'm very intrigued because it was just something that you did, Mm. you know, weren't we weren't being brought up in the in the technology industry we didn't have television for a number of years so very much a part of your life growing up was actually um was moving and having to bike and and having to do all these these um you know activities and of course we didn't think of them as exercise it was just what you had to do it was more like transport to get around Mm. and i'm very interested in the fact that um there's there's been a lot of literature emerging around um, the concept that when we're younger and if we're moving and constantly active, we develop what's called a physical literacy. And what we do is we remember those movement patterns and we remember, more importantly, the feelings of what it's like to, to actually... Um, um, you know, move and do things. So those 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 patterns or yeah. those memories stay with you for life. So that's one thing. The other thing was that um, I think what happens is that as you as you as certainly for me, as I came through life and as I um, you know life became busy and you start to a career and and everything else. Once you don't exercise you still remember, you still have those memories of what it was like to exercise. And I'm very intrigued, and I, I don't know um, how this fits from an academic sense, but certainly for myself and a lot of other um, people, uh, when you're exercising and you're doing something with intensity, um, you feel better. Mm. And, of course, back in those days, and when you're growing up and, you know, we didn't know about endorphins and, and dopamine and serotonins and all of those opiates that are, you know, that are part of the, the brain, you know, or the, the psychological effects of exercise. I mean, that can be detrimental, um, you know, when things go too far. Mm. But I think that when you're brought up and you're, you are active, um, you, you, you do know that it makes you feel good. And so what happens is when you can't exercise, and many of us have had situations where we haven't been able to do the habitual exercise, so we, um, we miss those feelings. Mm. And, and that's what I, um, I feel very passionate about, the fact that often when we're talking about exercise, we, we're not talking about the subjective um, effects of exercise and, and those personal feelings, because those feelings are the things that we want to try and get people who who don't exercise. We want them to 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 over time 
um, accumulate those subjective um, meanings around exercise and those feelings, those feel-good, you know, um, kind of um, feelings. And uh, and those are really hard, you know, when you haven't exercised. Mm. Well, that's the question, because if we look at today's society, like if we... You know, particularly if you look at a lot of kids nowadays, they're going to grow up never exercising at all. They won't even know the feeling of exercising. And and I imagine if you put their heart rate at a high level, that may even be a scary kind of experience for them because their bodies, mm-hmm. you know, they're so unfamiliar to those experiences. So mm-hmm. with people like that, you know, you and I, we were sporty kids. We, we, you know, if we move away from it, we understand, well, geez, I need this in my life. But if I've never had that experience, what's the right way to transition that into your life? Um, I have thought a lot about this, as I'm yeah. sure you have, Kevin, but um, there, there, there is no right way. The right way is, is whatever the person will, will tolerate. And, you know, but, but that's why I love personal training. And I love the fact that if we, because it's about developing new habits. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I've been reading a lot about habits lately. And, and you know, habits, um, where you and I have acquired habits of exercise, habits of eating, habits of, you know, getting up and, and being disciplined about things that we that we do. And as you say, the scary thing is is that there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, haven't developed those habits over a lifetime. Um, so number one, I'm I'm a very strong believer in that it all starts um, when children are, are young to get them active. And of course that requires parental support um, and if you know and if you can get parents understanding the benefits the long the lifelong benefits of being physically active for their kids then they can potentially get them into you know some kind of activity and it doesn't need to be you know anything too intense mm. um, so but how do you get people into those feelings well what I've learned and what I've certainly, um, you know, thought about over a long time now and certainly following my master's um, studies that I've been doing and talking to top trainers, um, you have to get some wins on the board hmm. and, and therefore people have to have some kind of goal or they have to feel that they, um, you know, need to make a change around exercise and and or nutrition. Mm. Um, and I won't go into nutrition yet, but that's a that's a really big part of it. So if 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 people like you and I are going to be successful at helping people believe in the power of exercise to make them feel good, um, then that requires a lot of support. And mm. that's what behavior change is. Behavior change is is setting strategies and, and setting um, and helping people believe that they will feel better. And that's a huge task for people who have never experienced those, you know, that endorphin relief, those mm. feel, um, um, feelings, you know, of riding a bike or going for a run or doing something um, because they've been sedentary most of their life. Mm. But... Um, you know the big thing is 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 uh, you know we've learned this from smoking cessation programs and and drug addiction cessation programs and even even weight loss programs over the years. Um, if you keep educating people um, around how they can feel good and how they can benefit from putting exercise into their life, then hopefully they will try something 
um, that they will do. But interestingly, we know we also know that that if we're going to help people, you know, um, gravitate towards regular patterns of, of exercise or activity, um, then it's hugely um, um, more successful when they're in a group. Mm. And even if that group is only two people, and, and you know from, from personal training. And, and So I'm a big believer in um, people need help to change their behaviour, but there's got to be um, a desire there to start with, mm. and I think that's where it starts. And I believe that, you know, that everybody knows that they should be exercising. However, there are things that go on. Life gets in the way, yeah. you know, and, and lots of people now use that as an excuse um, for whatever reason. But, but if they've got a desire um, to, to bring exercise back into their life, then that's a that's that's the starting point. So, so, so desire, though, sorry, how you create that desire is, you know, kids have to be active and they have to have those benefits, feel those benefits. So, so you get it. As, as someone listening right now, if you've got kids, it's like your responsibility is to make sure you're mm. showing the commitment to your kids to to put the energy in to make sure they've got good exercise in their life. Absolutely, yeah. and even even if that isn't something that you're you know, particularly in of as, as being active as yeah. a parent, then think about your kids and think about those movement patterns. Think about the fact that if they do want to exercise, take up, you know, more formal and planned exercise in their 20s. Um, if they can't ride a bike or if they haven't got those coordination patterns, then it makes it a lot harder. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we're really setting up our kids for lifestyle diseases if we're not keeping them active and keeping the nerves firing and 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 enabling that feel good factor. You, um, you talk about in your in your master's um, thesis how you were talking about how you you really looked at you know the street smart personal trainer, the personal trainer who who maybe hasn't kind of gone down the academic path, but just through being in the world for long enough, they figured out what are the strategies that are going to help you know everyday people create this change that we're talking about. What, what, what were some of the strategies that came through that you found these experienced personal trainers actually had and used? Well, thanks for asking, Bevan, because um, the big one, the big one was they um, when they when they very uh, the very first time that they met their clients, um, they really honed in on barriers and or obstacles, okay. and um, that was the big thing. They they for example, I would say to you now, Bevan, I can see that you you know that you haven't exercised regularly for a number of years now. What's preventing you from doing that? Mm. Um, so it really becomes the client telling them how to solve the client's problems because that's what a personal trainer is. Um, the personal trainer is there to help the client overcome whatever those obstacles and barriers are, mentally as well as as well as practically. So that was the first thing is that, and I called it in my thesis, cutting to the chase. You know, there was none of this. Uh, <laughs> there was none of this. Um, you know, too much questioning. Obviously, there was some medical um, questioning, but really it was, why aren't you doing this now? Yeah. What is going on in your life? What are some of the barriers that you perceive that, that uh, are, are preventing you from, you know, getting exercise in your life or losing weight or putting on muscle or whatever those, all those goals that people come to personal trainers for? So that was the first thing. Um, the trainers who... Had learned, you know, by the school of hard knocks, 
had really drilled in on what were the things preventing success, psychologically as well as mm. practically said. The second thing was, and this is where my, you, you will know as, as, as well as I've learned over the years through the fitness industry, the, the manner of the personal trainers who were, the, who were most successful, and I use success in that they had a waiting list of clients, they, and the reason they had a waiting list of clients because they did help clients reach their goals. But the other thing is, these trainers were long, they'd been in the game a long time, five years or more, and they had had clients for five years or more. So their clients mm. were them. And what had happened was that these trainers had developed an authority. They were quite um, very friendly. I called it friendly but firm. Mm. Didn't put up with excuses. So there was a high degree of client accountability. And one of the things that um, that I you know, see in, in trainers that I work with today is that a lot of the younger, tra- the newer trainers on the scene don't really hone in on the accountability with their clients. So some of the strategies that these trainers were using was to use nutrition diaries, was to really drill their clients on what exercise they had accomplished um, when the trainer wasn't there, even yeah. if they were being seen once a month. There was always this accountability. So the trainers were always checking up on them. Um, and then um, there was this this level of authority. Mm. And I've, I have termed this a transformational leadership style. So it wasn't it wasn't like we see on TV, you know, the sergeant drill major type authority. And, and unfortunately, that's the, you know, that's some of the um, impression that people get of, of personal training. Yeah. But it was it was it was very it was more a coaching type um, leadership authority. So, for example, I would be saying to you know, if, if you were working with me, then I'd be very firm about what you had to do for the week and and how you and what intensity so it was quite specific and and it was then i would make it accountable and i found that that differed from the medical model that um is being taught in many um uh, institutions today but uh we have this program in new zealand called the green prescription and the Mm. green prescription is a program to, to whereby um, doctors write a prescription of, of walking or exercise. The patient um, signs up with the sports trust, and there are people in the sports trust that w- work with that person to, um, or that patient to get exercise into their life through various means. But it's a very, um, it empowers the client. It's a very counselling style of, a, you know, of of. Um, uh, recommendations yeah. for the client, and I was I found that the the personal trainers were being quite authoritative. They were quite, you know, they were they were more like, you know, a, a coach yeah. um, in terms of a sports coach. There's an expectation and, of behaviour. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the way they said it, and the way you know, there was an expectation that the client would be doing these things, mm. and if the client didn't do these things, then there were consequences. Mm. And the consequences, so, and they always followed up on those consequences. So, um, so those trainers who were most successful um, had a transformational leadership and, and authoritative style, and that was probably the main thing that came out of that. 
The other thing that came out of the research was that they weren't they 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 had developed systems of training that they believed in. So it wasn't they weren't systems of training that had been taught to them through their certification programs. Um, they had developed their own ways of helping people to lose weight and and gain muscle, which are the primary reasons people have a personal trainer. So these trainers had really believed in their own systems, and these systems weren't just exercise, they were nutrition. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of doing nutrition under the radar because they didn't feel that they believed in some of the nutritional recommendations that were around, you know, um, five years ago or four yeah. years ago. Um, so they had developed their own... Um, you know, they've done their own reading and they've developed their own nutrition strategies as well. And they, they really believed that the, 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 one of the questions I said to them was, when you started as a personal trainer, between starting and what you know now, five or more years later, what have you learned? Hmm. And they, every single one of them said that they had learned that what they... Um, they initially thought that it was just exercise that they needed to get into people's life, but they soon realised that it was more than that. It was more of the lifestyle changes, which included nutrition. Mm. And it's one of the problems we have is is how much nutrition, you know, should personal trainers be advising clients on? Mm. What kind of training do they have? So that was kind of one of the findings that came out of it. And perhaps the last finding was their own um, realisation that they had to be more than personal trainers. And what so what they found was that they got the first, they, they, they wanted the first kick to get client success. So that might be get them started on weight loss, for example. So really work with that client, rein that client in, keep them close to them, and really monitor everything that they were doing throughout the day, every day of the week. Um, but as the client stayed with them, then those initial goals, those trainers were turning into other goals. For example, a, one of the trainers um, had, had very much his clients had started as weight loss clients. They wanted to lose a few kilos, but now he had opened them up to this world of opportunity around doing triathlons, doing coast-to-coast. -coast. He had 15 clients in the coast-to-coast -coast one year, um, and they'd all started with him as a, a weight loss client. And this is what I found, that, that the trainers... Um, that the clients were locking on to their trainers, and I didn't talk to the clients, but I only talked to the trainers. But the trainers then, as they as they um, initially they were very authoritative, but over time, as the clients reached their initial goals, the trainers were very very good at then moving them on and, and setting other goals um, around their lifestyle and around different different um, habits and different. Um, environments so they had, they had the ability to evolve the person as a whole not just the initial kind of goal absolutely yeah. yep. yep absolutely so 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 you did that study and that was very much about how do people who influence people move towards exercise and it sounds like your doctorates are very much around how do people who are starting exercise so so what's shifting as you move towards your doctorate and, and what insight are you gaining now well i guess the the greatest insight i mean with with my doctorate i'm focusing on women in their midlife and um, and how uh, having a personal trainer has influenced exercise in their lives and as they transition into healthy ageing. And, of course, in New Zealand, like many other countries, we're a bit concerned about how all of us are ageing or yeah. how 
baby boomers are aging. And um, so I was very interested in the um, in, in why a, um, a lot of women, are, uh, women in their midlife are one of the highest demographics to be joining gyms and having personal trainers. And, um, and I was very interested in exploring this and how it affected um, how they were aging. So even though, you know, it's a little bit aside from the behaviour change that I looked at with my masters, it's still in that genre of how do personal trainers influence um, people's lives mm. in, in ways that, that help them exercise more. And the biggest thing that's come through by talking to clients is that sense of accountability. They feel that if they didn't have um, a diarised session or if they didn't have this relationship with their personal trainer, then they, again, life would get in the way. They'd find other things to fill their time. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the biggest thing is why they are having a personal trainer in the first place, and it's to enable them into healthier ageing. So that was really interesting. Okay. It had gone past, uh, you know, I, I call it, it's gone from the, the visible to the invisible. So they're not so worried about their, the way they look outside, externally, it's about how they feel internally. And, um, and so what has... Um, what has uh, uh, again what has really influenced my view over the years um, you know working from a sports science perspective an exercise science perspective is that exercise is not powerful just physiologically but emotionally and spiritually and psychologically Mm. And that subjective dimension of exercise gets so forgotten about. Mm, yeah. Think about why people are exercising. So I have really backed off, and, and I probably, you know, uh, I do put up my hand to say that I do throw spanners in the works when I'm, you know, when I'm lecturing or, or, or teaching. And I say it's not just about the physical, mm. you know, it's not about it doesn't matter what you do as a personal trainer. It doesn't matter if this person just goes for a walk. They don't need to do, you know, three sets of 12 reps of a certain exercise um, all the time because what they get out of it is just as much the emotional and the, and the, and the social and the, and the, the spiritual mm. as, as the physical. Um, and I think that's, that's really what has changed my mind. You know, the fitness industry gets criticised hugely for, you know, from academics because it's too focused on aesthetics mm. and it's, you know, and that's the, the looking good industry and, and everything else. Now, I've always put my hand up and said, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with that. If that makes people feel better, you know, you, you know, that's the sports analogy, isn't it? Or the racing analogy, if you if you look good, you feel good, you go good, yep. you know. And um, and, and that analogy is, is still very much part of the, the fitness industry. But the fitness industry has taught me so much about about the beauty of our industry, and I don't mean that in an in aesthetic sense, yeah. but the power of our industry to bring people into um, changing habits and changing um, and giving them opportunity to do different things, whether it's aerobics or whether it's just going to the gym and using a treadmill or a bike or whether going to the gym gives them the social connection um, because they're you know, from they're working in a group in a in a group class situation, and you know that from aerobics, mm. the, the power of 
of music to motivate people and the power of being in a group and, and um, you know, compete against yourself and stuff. So I guess... Um, it's a funny one as well, isn't it? Because I often think about this because I, I get frustrated with our, my, you know, the industry's kind of the way we sell ourselves. Like, you know, it's six-pack abs and sex for girls, basically. And, <laughs> and um, I do find that frustrating but then at the same time, that's what people buy into. And it's almost like like it's this catch-22, isn't it? Because if you try to go out there and you sell a product, like I've got a running product, and we, we don't do image at all, and we try to sell successive growth and all the rest of it. Mm. If I went and said it's a weight loss product, we'd sell mm. so many more you know packages just because that's, that's the carrot that people have. So it's yeah. this kind of – but I know if I get people in my world, I can teach them about the value of – exercise to their life not just to the physical to the benefits of so many other areas and it's a while i i am i'm really critical of my you know of the fitness industry and how we just kind of tend to sell the six-pack abs but at Mm. the same time it it seems to be the way that opens the door doesn't it well i think depending on what age you are and and i'm very relaxed about that in the past um uh, you know now now i'm very relaxed about all sorts of things but um (laughs) But, you know, and I'm, I'm one who has, you know, has such a belief in the power of the fitness industry. Mm. Um, well, it's kept me, you know, interested all, all my life. But I'm relaxed about why people come to our industry. And if that is, if the thought that they're going to lose a few kilos gets them in the door um, to benefit from the power of um, being around like-minded people, then that is the thing that might keep them going. And this is, you know, and, and, and we haven't been very good in the past with retaining people. We, um, and again, that's our industry gets heavily criticised because we're focused on opening the door, you know, getting new members in the door, but then we're not so focused on closing the door and, and keeping them. And, and, I mean, people come and go with all sorts of activities um, for whatever reason. But so I'm a bit more relaxed about the aesthetics of our industry, but I'm very passionate about the fact that if we do get people in the door, and I don't just mean a gym, it could yeah, be you know any, yeah. a recreation yeah. centre, or it could just be working with a trainer, or you know in the in an outdoor environment, or going for bike rides or whatever. It's about understanding that person and what's going to keep them exercising because it's. That's where we fail. We fail because we're too focused on the short-term fix um, and not focused on the long, you know, what are we doing long-term? And, and, and personal trainers need to really think about, well, if they're getting, you know, if they can get some runs on the board for the first six weeks, it's about trying to retain that person and then build up these other dimensions mm. of the, the power of activity. Um, or the power of, of you know of, of exercise or, or whatever. So um, I th- I don't think it's it's one thing. I think it's multi you know multi dimensional. Um, you know for for I've been brought up you know like you have with the um, aerobics you know with yeah. exercise to music as we now call it. And I had a period of time whereby I went to the gym, did some weights found it very boring because I was so used to that class environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that the fitness industry has a lot to offer. Um, and if, you know, going right back to your question about how do we, how do we as an industry work towards encouraging people to, um, you know, increase their activity and not be a sedentary and to get exercise into their life, 
um, then the fitness industry has a real can have a real role to play in that because there's so much that you can do um, within within the genre of exercise these days. You know, you can go and lift a few weights, but if you hate doing that, like me, then you could find a class. You could find a high intensity class. You could mm-hmm. find Pilates or yoga. So I think the fit, when I think about the 30 years that I've been in the fitness industry, I think that that's where we contribute a huge amount to society because we're providing an environment that people can exercise safely, and that's quite a big deal in in other in countries other than New Zealand and certainly in, in cities. Um, we provide an environment where they're amongst like-minded people. Mm. Um, we provide an environment whereby they do have access to different movement patterns, whether it's just sitting on a bike or whether it's doing something a little bit more coordinated, you know, like a boxing class or whatever. Um, so... I think that the fitness industry has 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 um, made huge gains uh, in terms of um, how people in the community can use the gym or a recreation centre as a place to go where they can exercise and um, and try and get exercise into their life. But but the power of that is in the people who support them. So so a lot of your work to, um, you we've talked about today is you know working with personal trainers. What if the person who's listening right now and maybe that's not in their budget, what would be mm. some advice maybe from you just your own experience in the industry or um, maybe some other insight you've gained into um, if I don't can't afford necessarily that that kind of professional who has that insight beside me, what would mm. be some strategies I'd want to try to implement so I can get exercise in my life? Well, the first thing would be um, to go and find a friend. Okay. But it's got to be a friend who's just like you, yeah? It can, it's got to be someone who has the same goals as you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll get you'll either feel a failure if they're fitter than you, um, or you, you, know, you just won't have too much in common. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the first thing. We know the power. We know the power of support. Mm-hmm. And, and what support gives you is the belief. It's called self-efficacy. And um, it gives you the confidence that you can actually do this. And a, and, and a, a, a friend, you know, a workout friend is going to be the person that, that helps keep you on track hmm. and keeps you accountable. And it doesn't need to be, as you say, a personal trainer. It could just be that, you know, you find someone in your local community who, or a work colleague or whatever. The second thing you need to do is you need to recruit your family, you know, um, or people around you who are your loved ones, because they're the ones that need to keep you going, um, particularly, and we know so much more about weight loss, for example, and I don't just want to focus on weight loss, but it's a big part of our yeah, industry, yeah. big part of what motivates people, um, you know, to, to actually get exercise into their life, and we've got, you know, we've got rather you know, big problems, um, literally, with obesity around the Western world. So um, everybody, you know, has their own kind of beliefs about, you know, how to manage that. But what we know about weight loss, for example, is that it's it's not just about you as an individual, it's about the environment you live in, and it's about the social context um, as well. So we, we, it's kind of, we, we, when we're working with weight loss, we need a, socio, a socio-ecological approach um, to it. However, if you've got your family on board, 
if you have a friend on board, then you are more likely to succeed with sticking at it because weight loss takes time. In mm. fact, it takes successful weight loss when you look at the work out of the National Weight Control um, Registry um, with uh, Dr. Rena Wing in America. She has looked at the people who are most successful and the people who are least successful with their weight loss. And I think she's got about 20,000 clients now who have registered with her wow. um, research program. And she has found that, that um, for weight loss especially, um, a successful weight loss is a year or more. Well, a year or more is a long time. Yeah. And we're focused on in the industry is the quick fixes, the six weeks, the eight weeks. And I call those, they're just the circuit breakers. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that are just the, the, the catalyst to change something and to start to establish routines and habits that you need to acquire in your life. So, but for you to keep going for a year or more, then that takes a lot of support. Mm. So, and there's a lot of changes that you've got to make if you're someone who who um, wants to lose some weight, for example. There's a lot of changes around, you know, what food you've got in the house, what exercise you plan for your week, the daily activity you get, you know, walking the stairs instead of taking the lift, um, your hormonal profile, everything. There's so much around losing weight that we know about these days and it's not just exercise in fact for some people who are who who are exhausted um, exercise can be the wrong thing for them they actually need to change their nutrition and rehydrate themselves and and you know get their iron levels up before they can manage exercise so there's a lot of things in that basket and you know in that toolbox that people need to focus on and um, they need support to do that. So I'm a really big believer in if someone is wanting to, you know, to kickstart some, some new habits around a healthy lifestyle, then find the right support almost before you find the right exercise program. Well, I think the other, th the other side of that as well is that if I'm going to create change in my life, and I, A, I need that support, but also it's going to often change the people around me's life as well. So if I'm a mother and I do the cooking, you know, suddenly I might be changing what the, those around me, and if I don't have that support, and they want me to keep eating food that I know is bad for me, mm. I'm, you know, that's, I'm confronted with that change all the time, aren't I? So, that, you know, if I don't have that support on that side, mm. it's sticking mm. the cards up against me. No, and the big thing is, it's about, you know, I call it the three the three Ds, <laughs> you know, of, of any behaviour change. Um, it's number one, it's desire. You've got to want it. Mm. Number two, it's discipline yeah <laughs> you know you've got to have willpower and how do we how do we train willpower you know that's that's a huge one and then it's um you've got to have the dedication to stick with it so yeah. i call it three d's of behavior change and you know desire discipline and dedication and those things are really really hard particularly when you've been brought up um to have certain habits and certain ways of eating and certain ways of 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 getting through your day or you know you're juggling you know children and yeah. family and life and everything and you know from my personal um uh, experience over the last two years um the big thing in midlife is menopause so then suddenly yeah. i'm out now saying hey menopause is the game changer exercise doesn't work anymore um it is about nutrition and it is about making those habits and and you know doing all these things that we we know but we and we thought we were doing the right stuff. Um, but however, 
you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. Because well, after a while, Bevan, genetics kicks in. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, I suppose the question I have for you on that front is, you know, because you are somebody who, like myself, you know, my, my exercise journey, particularly in my younger life, was very much about higher self. I was always kind of exploring, where's the next level of me and how can I push harder? And, and I was always driven by that. And I'm sh- you know, based on your kind of history and movement, I'm sure you're very similar. So what happens with your, and you're just your own experience of the shift in perception of exercise in my life and how, it, you know, like I'm sure you still like a challenging workout, but it's probably not the driver as much as what it is in the past or, or is it? And mm. what what has shifted in the, mm. your kind of flow of exercise of your own life? Mm. That's a really good question, Bevan, and that's been something that I've been really um, asking myself for the last uh, year or so. Um as, you know, and I'm in my mid-50s now, and, and like everyone, um, your past, I believe that your past and genetics catch up with you. And mm. one of the things that I'm really big on now, and, and something that hit me really hard, was inflammation. Not only with menopause, but because I have had a, a history of high-intensity exercise, a lot of running, I've done marathons, I've done mm. Ironman, everything. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, what we don't know doesn't, doesn't hurt us. But what I've learned is that exercise is still very much a part of who I am. I I need it most days, but I need different types of exercise. And what I've learned is that I've had to find alternatives to running, for example. And, you know, and I love running for what it does to me in terms of my psychological well-being. But unfortunately... It's, you know, we're the guinea pigs, our generation, for the running revolution, and there's a lot of injury management that needs to go on. So a lot of people, I'm a lot, uh, I'm a lot more sympathetic now with people who, as they get into their middle age, and, the, you know, the baby boomers, um, we're all finding our, our bikes again. Yeah. <laughs> um, because our bodies are giving up on us. Yeah. Um, but just because our bodies are giving up on us doesn't mean that we have to give up on exercise. And what I'm learning is that, you know, you to get that feel-good kick um, that, that you've craved for, you know, for, for many years, um, I wouldn't quite call it an exercise addiction, but it's you love, you know, the fact that you're exercising at high intensity. You have to find other ways to get that. So, for example, with me personally, I now make sure that instead of... Um, you know, instead of running the dog, I'm walking the dog, but I'm also going to, I've changed the type of exercise I do so I can get to um, an indoor spin class yeah. or I can get out on the road and, you know, in the weekend. But sometimes the roads aren't all that safe, um, particularly here in the Waikato. And so I think that, um, you know, that it's um, the positive thing for me is I've, I've backed off um, thinking about exercise the way I I have done in the past, you know, I needed exercise when I was younger, I, I needed the stress relief, I needed, you know, that endorphin um, feel, I still need that, but in a different way, mm. but now mm. I'm thinking, right, well, how do I use exercise to manage healthy ageing, and what is healthy ageing, and how do I want to feel, mm. um, because exercise, and too much exercise, is inflammatory, so we do have to be really careful about how much high-intensity exercise we do. I'm a little bit concerned about this huge emphasis now on high-intensity yes. interval training and, and grit and everything because it's not for everyone. Um, and the number of um, seminars I do now and, and talk to, you know, <laughs> talk to women my age who, are, who their personal traders are getting them into hit and grit, um, and they're exhausted. 
Um, and they're, you know, and when they've done their bloods, they find that their iron's low and their vitamin D's low and all these things. So at this stage in their life, those high intensity sessions aren't suiting their physiology. Mm. Uh, it might be helping their psychology, but it's not helping their physiology. Mm. Um, we know when when high going going, you know, right back to um, behaviour. We know when people are exhausted, and we know that when they're um, they're not recovering well from high intensity training, what do they typically do? They go for the sugars, mm. and they go for quick fixes. They go mm. for that can of coke. They go for all these things that that give them that 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 sudden you know mm. relief. Mm. So um, so I guess your question was, what have I found over the years with exercise? Well, I've found that as I go through the decades, I need to change what I do. But it doesn't change my need for exercise. I've just got to find alternatives, and and I think that that's what personal trainers, if they're working with older clients, they need to keep thinking about alternatives. Mm-hmm. And there are so many alternatives these days. The other thing I've found is that um, as uh, you know, as 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 you get older, um, exercise doesn't. It's it's harder to get the results that you want that you've had yeah. in the past. The exercise. Um, for whatever reasons, you know, and it's harder to put on muscle. It's harder to, you know, to get your heart rate up. It's, mm. it's harder to, you know, recover. So, uh, so I'm a bit more strategic around the types of exercise I do. I do these days, and I think, I think that's where um, a lot of uh, people who who work, you know, who support people who exercise, for example, personal trainers or gym instructors. Um, they, they've got to learn that it's not one size fits all. And unfortunately, in our industry, there's a lot of one size trying to fit all with yep. different programs and things. Um, and what's what's suitable for males is not necessarily suitable for females. So personal trainers have to really keep educating themselves and keep learning um, about you know different strategies and different ways of training and different different ways of getting people to to exercise. With, with regards to the um, the esteem aspect of it, you know, because like, one thing I find is, um, you know, that whole comparison is a dangerous thing. In comparison, A, with other people, or B, comparing myself to my peak time. So, for example, I did Ironman for years, and I was kind of, you know, nine-hour Ironman, so I was a pretty decent Ironman. And if I go back to running right now, I can easily think, oh, wow, back in the past I was this. And, and mm-hmm. fortunately, I've learned to kind of have the right perspective on that but you know as with aging is that hard because do you do do you find that comparison can be a dangerous thing because it does make you want to chase the past or Mm -hmm. have you found that healthy perspective of Mm -hmm. this is where I am this is what I need to focus on I think that's a I think that takes time (laughs) I think that as we get older particularly those of us who have um you know exercise and and and, you know what we've done in the past has been such a big part of who we are and our our identity, you know, um, then what the, the mind is willing, but the body isn't, yeah. is the old, and and that's very much a part of it. So you do, it's like anything, you do have to retrain the brain um, in terms of what the body can tolerate. And you know, there's if you've come through, like you said, you've done numerous Iron Men things. Um, you know, sometimes ego gets in the way, and mm. you think you've got to exercise that hard, but as you age, it takes longer to recover. So the focus is recovery. So if you have a really hard session one day, then your recovery is going to take longer. And that's the critical thing um, that I've learned and and a lot of other trainers are learning is that um, if we we 
do too much too soon and if we try and attain the levels of intensity because it's that that intensity factor that, that, that we're trying to achieve then people's recovery takes longer and that's what trainers have to learn to manage how do we manage recovery and everything in sports science these days is about how to how to recover faster and and you know and we know this from our our rugby players and the All Blacks and the netball and, and everything else because these guys are having to play a, at elite level sport and they're having to turn over mm. their recovery a lot more quickly. So we know a lot more from a physiological perspective and a sports science perspective about how people recover, but everybody is an individual in terms of their ability to recover because good recovery means good sleep, <laughs> It means good hormonal level. It means, you know, the right vitamin D to get melatonin yeah. um, cycles going. It's so much more than just, you know, what we've done in the past, which is just schedule, you know, a weekly program of exercise. And I think that as we, as as people get older, um, it's their recovery ability. They, they might still be able to do the intensity and the volume, um, uh, not the volume, but the intensity of, of their workouts, but what they've got to do is really think about the recovery. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I, I, I think I'll leave it too. I've taken up an hour of your time and I could talk to you for bloody hours. Yeah. You're brilliant. Um, Wendy, is there, is there anywhere people can go to follow your work? Um, well, I, I do a lot of writing for Australian Fitness Network Yeah. Uh, and I'm regularly writing for them. So um, I have a LinkedIn profile. Yep. Um, I'm about to... Uh, over the next couple of months, set up a behaviour change website oh, for um, menopausal women. Great. So, um, so that's on the and the that's keeping me busy at the moment, and uh, and that's going to be you know um, very much a part of the support that that women need, um, women in their midlife need without the need for medication. I think if we can help, you know, my big thing is is um, for so long. Um, you know, we've we've lived with the medicalisation of um, society. Mm. You know, it's easy to take a pill for this and a pill for that and everything. Yeah. So my my big uh, mentor or rant at the moment is is really, you know, if we can help people into healthier ageing, and by health I mean, you know, their 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 insides, not their outside. Yeah. Um, and you know what's going on with their their blood pressure and their cholesterol and, and all these things. Um, there's a lot happening around ageing and longevity in the States um, and, you know, hormonal balance and all sorts of things. So, so the you know, the physiology is still a very big part of it for me. But, um, you know, if, if there's one thing I've learned is that the physiology is matched with the psychology, yeah. you know, about exercise and well-being and healthy ageing or, or whatever. So send me through the link when you get it up, and I'll um and I'll put it out there to the world as well. You you're you're an amazing woman who's um, obviously very successful and an inspiration to all of us in the industry, and I'm sure the people you touch in your own life. Uh, just you've got. An, I always I love this idea of what's your body of work in your life. You know you know what's the body of work you've created, and when do you have a body of work that's um very very impressive it's really important stuff thank you so much for coming on today and I'm sure my listeners got lots of great insight from you, and uh, hopefully maybe sometime in the future I'll get you back on again. Thanks, Bevan. I really enjoyed it.
Right, I think that's pretty much my interview with Wendy Sweet. Well, it was my interview with Wendy Sweet. Uh, hopefully, you gained some lots of insight through uh, that talk of hers. She, um, as you can tell, as I was saying before this, the interview that she's a very kind of wise woman in the world of fitness, and I really enjoyed talking to her. She was just someone who I don't know. I just I, I could sit. In, I seriously, that could have been a five-hour podcast if you asked me. <laughs> I could have just kept on going, but uh, maybe I will. I, I, I will try to get her back on in the future. So anyway, um, I do get questions from you guys um, from time to time, and I got a question through uh, the other day, actually. I'm going to actually, give me a second, I'm going to pause. So there's a girl who comes to my gym, I'm back from the pause, by the way. <laughs> um, there's a girl who comes to uh, my class at the gym, who's been coming for maybe, I'm not quite sure, maybe a year or so. Um, and uh, she's somewhat, she, like, I'm very fortunate that some people are quite generous in their feedback on my work, and she's someone who's got on my blog list, and she writes me occasionally and just tells me she enjoys my work and that kind of stuff, and she's been always quite um, quite generous in her um, feedback on my work, and I always appreciate that kind of work, and her name's uh, Tresca Forrester, and she's a girl who's worked extremely hard to make some massive massive change in her life now um she sent me this email and i'm going to read bits of it to you in a second but i asked her if i could answer her question she kind of asked me this question which i'm going to talk about in a second and uh and she asked if i could answer the question and i said would you mind if i do it on the podcast she said no no go for it and 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 she just told me she kind of gave me a bit more feedback but teresco is a girl who got up to 172 kg so for those of you in places where pound, let me have a look here. If I go wait, um, uh, if I go kg to pound, you're you're looking at around about you know three hundred eighty pounds. So she you know she had a weight problem, and obviously quite a, a severe weight problem. And some period of time ago in her past, she decided that she needed to change. Uh, and there was this kind of massive cost to her weight and she started working on losing her weight and um, you know I'm not sure how that was before she joined the gym but she's been working really hard and I, I don't know exactly how much weight she's lost to this point but she's obviously lost a lot of weight and she still has some work to go but she just you know obviously she's on the right path and she's making some massive change and while she's been massively successful some interesting kind of I don't know if they're dilemmas, but um, some interesting kind of thoughts have popped up into her head around changes that have come from the change she's, cre- she's creating in her life. And I thought I'd read out a little bit of her email to show you some, some of the questions she had, which I'm going to kind of give my thoughts on here today. Okay, so here's the email I've got here. Um, she goes, I've got a serious question I need to ask you because I'm not quite sure of why it's getting to me. As you know, I've been working hard at the gym and it does go a little beyond that, that it's been a phase of my life that's been quite different for many years before. The last couple of years are coming together nicely. To put it simply, what I have found is I've gained some serious results finally, coming from somewhere where I used to be ridiculously overweight and not confident and it was an excuse for not doing a number of things in my life. My famous line was always, when I'm thinner and more confident. So while I still have some serious work to do, what's happened is I have changed and I've gained a massive amount of confidence in what I do, not just in fitness, but in my life in general. I've changed jobs and managed to work my way up into a management and uh, places with media and things that require so much confidence that two years ago I would have laughed if someone had told me I would be here. But now I feel like I don't know myself or my old life. 
I hope this makes sense, but it feels like I'm having a midlife crisis because everything I knew before has changed, but in the best way. Nothing awful, but I feel like I've changed so much that some aspects of my life aren't applicable anymore. Things I used to hide behind and want so much from my life, I just truly don't know where they belong. Oh, sorry, I just don't truly know where to begin. It's like I've learned to make a life again, but one actually always truly wanted, one I always truly wanted, and now feel I deserve. I'm sure you've had people tell you this before. It can't be unusual when people go to begin to change, not only on the outside, but in the inside as well. I think in some ways, I don't know if I have truly believed that I would get to this point. I figured it would never have to face the big things because I'd never get there. It's not bad. I know this isn't a bad place to be, but it's worrying me. I'm feeling almost at a loss for my old self, but I don't know what to do with my new self either. It probably sounds crazy, but I suspect you're going to know what I mean because you have um, have an excellent handle of insight with people. One day I would love to chat to you about this and have your thoughts on this. So I suppose I suppose the ultimate question is, what happens when you change enough? And she kind of comes back, uh, we, we talked in a few emails, and she kind of comes back and says um, that and the relationships she had when she was kind of not addressing her weight issue, she had some friends who were kind of just allowed herself to be herself, and uh, and those people she felt she could be the true version of herself, but fundamentally she kind of hid that from the world in many other areas because of her insecurity kind of around her weight, and that for her... Um, you know, that ultimately she'd love to get to a place where she can be who she is 100% of the time. And it's a huge mental jump because she's, while she's moved forward quite massively, you know, she's probably got enough scars is the right word, but, you know, there's there's a history of a way of thinking that's behind her. So I suppose the question, and she didn't really kind of put a specific question, but I suppose the question really is, is when you change for the positive in your life, how do you know where to go as a person? And, and this is such a massive question. And, and hopefully, uh, Tesco, I can give you some, some thoughts here. Uh, one thing, I remember years ago, I, I had a friend who was um, going through some very uh, tough mental times, ended up in hospital. And um, and another friend of mine said to me, um, and, and, like, and I was 19, maybe, or something like that, like I was a young man, and I had no ability to be able to even know how to support a person with these this person's mental problems, and um, and I had a friend who was a little bit older than me, and he was, he was a bit of a wiser kind of soul, and, and I was talking to him about this, and one thing he talked to me about was, if anything, if you can provide this person with anything at this time, is to provide them with the sense that you trust that they know how to make good decisions for themselves. And um, and that, you know, if that's all you that's all I needed to offer at that moment. And I remember I going back to my friend and and talking about this um, the sense of trust and just saying, you know, like a you know, I, I believe that you you have the ability to make the right choices for you here and, I, and I'm here to support you through that. And in some ways I think one of the scary things for someone in, in Tesco's situation is that you've built a world that's so much about trusting that you're wrong or that you're failing. And and how do you start to build a world around trusting that it's okay for me to be true to who I truly am 
and, and who I truly want to be in this world. And so there's kind of, there's a few layers that probably need to be developed. The, the first is, is really spending time in, in, and getting that self-discovery of who I truly am and, and, and thinking of that as in a reflective way of who am I without the insecurities that I set in in my past. And it seems like you're saying here that I kind of have some understanding of that. And, and then there's this sense of who do I want to grow into being as a person because the sense of who we are is something that we are always evolving. It's not, you know, the guy that I was five years ago is different to the guy that I am now and the guy that I am five years from now will be different. So it's a, it is an evolution and, and, I, and I like the idea that it needs to be a conscious evolution of, you know, ideally the guy five years from now is just kind of better than what I am right now in many ways, shapes or forms. So I think the first thing is to really get a true sense of of what when you say you know when I was with my friends and I was being truly who I am like what does it really mean and, and, and you can go to deep levels of what are my values what are what are, how do I act how do I treat people and all those kind of things there and then I think once you kind of understand that is how do I build trust in that how do I build trust in me realizing it's okay for me to go there now, in Tesco's email, she talked about how career-wise, she's, she's very confident in her career ability now, and, you know, previously she probably sat in doubt, but now she nothing kind of phases her, she just kind of sits in it. And I imagine what's happened in your career is you've put yourself in situations where you've had to, to show the world a level of yourself, probably more in a skills-based way, um, you know, my skills of my job. Um, and through that, you've developed this, this sense of, oh, I'm going to be okay at this level. And uh, and in Korea, it sounds like they put more levels in front of you. And as you've kind of gone up these next levels, your trust and your ability has come through. And it seems that to me, as you move forward with the kind of the self stuff, it's actually allowing and spending the time to find the trust in being me is is okay in the world, and being me. Is going to be accepted by my world and it's actually better for myself and for my world so you know the person the, the friend who saw you for who you truly were was better off than the person who who saw the the kind of suppressed and secure you and so actually how do i build trust to show more of the world of that person you know, to, and not be afraid to show that. And it's, I don't know if it's a jump in the water kind of, I think it's more of a stepping stone kind of approach where you kind of, you're building your confidence like you have with your career and building that trust. I do think there are a couple of things to be aware of. There are some people you do need to protect yourself from. You know, um, there are people who are insecure in this world in a way that they damage other people as a way to protect their own sense of, you know, failing or self or identity. And so, you know, you, you do need to pick the right people and you do need to think about who I'm going to show through my will to and who I want to build trust in and then who I need to protect myself from as I move towards building this trust. But ultimately, I think for you right now, and again, there's, there's so many layers to this answer that I'm not even touching on, but I, but I ultimately think it's allowing myself to, to really realign with what I know is true for me also allow myself to let go of the things of the past that were about protecting me and maybe spending time to identify what those were and then also then as I allow myself to open up is to to find those moments where I can build trust that I'm going to be okay in that place and you, 
I, I, I'm pretty sure your experience, the more you show of yourself to the world, and fire it, the more you share your story, because girl, you're an inspiration, like man, like I can't comprehend that, I, I don't know how, like I've gone through some pretty big change, but uh, the change you're going through is as bloody inspiration, and, and, and you're doing a disservice to the world if, if the world doesn't get to see the version of you that that created this and that that's changed because of this and um and you know and i'm sure as you kind of show the world more of who you are you'll allow others to kind of create change in big ways as well i think one other thing that is that's really important to think about as well is um when do i allow myself to sit in the identity of the new me and this is something I find really fascinating uh, with my new runners. So you get people who are who are new runners and they come and join the running group and they, um, you know, they've never ran, they're unfit, they identify as, you know, a failure in fitness. And then over a period of time they join the group and, and, and there's a moment where suddenly I see myself as the new, the thing that I've actually been for a while and the newer version of myself. And so, like, I know, it's funny, I, I even had this when I went back to fitness as a young man. I remember, it wasn't a while, like, I remember, I didn't actually think I was that fit. Now, when I, when I was thinking that, I was exercising 15, 20 hours a week, and I was really fit. And it took me a while to understand that, man, I'm a, I'm a really fit man. And, um, and sometimes as we change, we hold on to the identity of the past for a long time, much longer than we need to. And, um, you know, for someone like Tesco, who's, you know, got up to 172 kg, who I imagine can't be doing any exercise at that time. And, and Farah, I see this girl, you know, two or three times a week exercising. So I know she's now an exerciser. Is she allowing herself to see herself as an exerciser yet? You know, maybe, I, I don't know the answer to that, but, that, you know, what parts of my identity and my new self do I... Sh- sh- Actually, am I in, but I'm not allowing myself to sit in. And, and I do think this whole idea of my identity, the how I self-identify, you know, she said earlier on in one of the other emails, you know, uh, my excuse was when I'm thinner and more confident, you know, that will allow me to live the life that I want was ultimately what she's saying. Well, now that you're living yourself, you're starting to live that life that you want. Are you allowing yourself to see yourself as a person who can have that life? And I think that's ultimately when we think about identity, like I see myself as a fit person. So because I see myself as a fit person, I allow myself to open myself up to opportunities that fit people see. Whereas if I always saw myself as an unfit guy, even though I may have been being fit, would that limit the opportunities that I allow myself to see because of that way I identify with myself? And so probably the second point I'll probably say for Tesco is that you aren't the person you were at 70, 172 kg. You you aren't. The change of created has created a massive shift in the person. And so which parts of your identity are you holding on to, which is that person, which kind of evidence shows you is not the case right now. And how can you allow yourself to sit in what your identity truly is now so you can open yourself up to more opportunity to go down the path that is obviously a much healthier path for you in your body and mind in your life. So um, so I suppose my two points are, uh, are is explore what I truly am and um, embrace that and then, and then create a life that allows you to, to evolve that and dig deeper into that and, you know, uh, you know, like, wow, what an, what an exciting journey. Like, like I find, like, I I'm, I'm get blown away by this stuff because when we think about it, imagine living a life where you're, 
your whole world is about protecting yourself from the thing that you you so hate about yourself. Like, imagine that life. That's such a consuming life. And then imagine that you get to a point where you decide you want to change and you actually change. Like, Tesca's changing, man. She's, the change this girl was going through is massive. And then suddenly that, that, that fear is disappearing and, and your issue is, well, who, do, who am I now? Now, that's, that's actually a really exciting kind of issue to have. And you, it's, it's one that you want to get right because you want to make sure it's going the right path. But, but fundamentally, trust who you are. And, and if anything, be courageous in moving to, um, towards more of who you are. And, and that is showing your weakness and showing your strength and, and inspiring those around you. And then also protect yourself from those who will be damaging. And lastly, allow yourself to sit in the identity of the person you are right now and maybe even aspire to be moving forward. I hope that helps. Sometimes with these kind of bigger questions, I don't know if I help or not, but some, hopefully there's some stuff to think about. And I'm sure there's many of you out there who have gone through change and maybe have asked these similar types of questions. Ultimately, the, the more you can be true to who you are in life, the better the world is and your world is. I, I, I fundamentally believe that. I, I really do. I, I, be true to yourself. It's really important. Team, if you have any questions, you want to email them to me. On, it's far out. This must be the longest show I've ever done. Um, hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks from now. I'm going to do one of my, my old Just Bevan shows. And then I've got a cool interview coming up two weeks after that because I've got an interview with uh, a top educator, which I think is going to be really interesting, talking about how, how we learn and uh, how we can learn to be better at learning ourselves. So I'll get on to that in a couple of weeks again. If you want to get on my, be a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com, go to Patreon, and... Uh, you know, chuck a couple of dollars towards each other. If you think it adds value to your life, I really would appreciate that kind of support. So, uh, yeah, you guys have a wonderful fortnight, and I'll see you real soon. Uh-huh.